0: This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Paraswap. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories, where together, twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of Bitcoin's earliest adopters, crypto's most influential leaders, those who have been out there building the craziest things that's going to power uh everything about our future lives about the lives that we're living right now people you know we're we're talking to people that are building sound stages with with ar scanning rooms so you can bring costume dragons into into the metaverse like nft relationship mapping we've been talking about a lot lately we've been talking about bitcoin and its future inside of the whole crypto landscape we saw like we saw the relationship between like sound money and then the rest of the crypto world It's I feel like we're coming to like a really good place, of where everything kind of is going to fit in really perfectly. Today, actually, uh, it's my pleasure, it's my honor to introduce my guest, John Devadas. John, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today.
1: Thank you very much, Charlie. The pleasure is all mine. Truly a privilege to be on the show with you. Thank you, sir.
0: Thank you. Um, You've you've written extensively about about everything, about computer science, about cryptography, about things like uh, psychology, biology. You are um, you. You're the the head developer. You lead the developer whole community at the Neo blockchain. Uh, Neo is actually, and I was doing, when we were doing the research. Neo and Ethereum came came launched around the exact same time. And I distinctly remember a lot of Neo stuff in the early like 2015s. I re- so you could say that Neo was one of the first post Bitcoin non proof of work blockchains. I think it was called like ant chain or ant shares or something at the time um yes
1: you're you're right Charlie it was called ant shares and I think it's a very good summary uh it is uh I wouldn't say was, it was it is one of the first uh proof of uh stake uh chains post uh BTC absolutely
0: focusing on like a proof of stake Byzantine fault tolerance uh and I was just looking at doing you know looking at the history and actually now I it's I'm very high like it's it's nice to see a community, a blockchain that's been around for a long time, just constantly growing and, and building out the community and doing a lot of different things. Because, you know, a lot of people are trying to claim that, oh, blockchains don't have long-term survival rates. They'll Two, three years later, they'll go, they'll go away. There's no point. The new technology. But I, I completely think that's so wrong in every single way. And also what's really cool is that you're on the planning commission. You're the chairman of the planning commission of your city where you live. That's really cool too, because I'm, I'm friends with like my mayor and the city commissioner. And I like, I think like city planning is a lot about is, is, uh, has a huge relationship in like, um, how in society, how we all kind of work together. And, and there's so much that goes into like, into that. Um, how did you get into that?
1: Oh, absolutely, no. That's the that's a really good point. So you did look up my resume, Charlie. So thank of you. Of course. <laughs> How did I get into it? Uh, about uh, seven, eight years ago, uh, I came to the realization that I wanted to do something to give back in terms of public policy, um, and especially uh, at a at a at a micro level in terms of my city, my community. And I was looking around to see, you know, wh- where could I give back my time and my energy. And as a developer. Having been a developer guy all my life, and as an architect, uh, the planning commission to me seemed like a, an interesting area where I could provide my expertise. And that's kind of how it began. I went and I talked to the guys, I talked to the mayor. Uh, they seemed to like me. So they said, okay, right, right, we'll uh, nominate you. And that's the journey. Uh, but I'll tell you though, I learned a lot in the process. I've learned uh, uh, things good, bad and ugly about how our policies uh, you know, are formulated.
0: You built some, some crazy tools at Microsoft a long time ago, tools that I used like um, the Arc of .NET. And uh, did I, was it Visual Basic or Visual Studio? Uh, and I remember actually having to learn a lot of these things in, in high school. So it's kind of cool talking to the guy who built a lot of these projects that, that you would argue that Microsoft was for a while the developer world of the internet and modern computer, probably in early, late 90s, early 2000s.
1: Yes, Charlie, totally, absolutely. I'm glad you've used the products. Uh, I spent close to two decades. Uh, you're right. I I built and led the architecture efforts and the team for .NET before it was called .NET uh, shipped uh, frameworks and tools for Visual Studio, which includes Visual Basic, uh, you know, C++, C Sharp, and so on, and also built out the early Microsoft application platform, as well as uh, uh, working on Azure uh, long before it was called Azure. In fact, uh, yeah you might or might not know this but the code name the code name for azure was red dog and so we used to wear red colored shoes that's the team working on red dog
0: Yeah what's with with the color red in in computer programming? red hat red dog clifford
1: <laughs> Well you know this is a probably I don't know is it opportune or inopportune to talk about red at this time but certainly <laughs> red so you... uh, for, for us at that point uh, it was more of a shift away from the blue scheme that much of dotnet had and that was the farthest we could get away but eventually as you realize the azure uh, color scheme uh, you know was not red it was uh, once again a blend of blue as most of uh, microsoft's developer products are these days
0: you know i want to i want to ask you a question about that um you've you've built your career about around being not only building tools, but creating very developer-friendly communities. The developers are the builders, and developer could mean a lot of different things. And if you actually look at which are the strongest protocols today in the blockchains, um, which are the largest communities, one of the things you look at is like activity and developer activity. How do you like reconcile, and I also want to know how you were introduced to Bitcoin in the same respect, but how do you reconcile something like Bitcoin, where it was almost like a a, a, a project-driven uh, uh, code base that is almost supposed to not really change much anymore and is not really supposed to have a huge, not supposed to have a huge developer community, but it's just very different than what you were used to building.
1: Yes, that's a really good question, Charlie, and and I'll give you a few perspectives on it. First, in terms of developers, uh, so if you look at the at the globe, there's about 22-plus million professional developers worldwide and something that the blockchain and the crypto world gets completely wrong uh, is because they are happy with 10,000 or 50,000 or 100,000 developers and i say look guys you know that's a drop in the ocean you're sitting in a corner of the room and saying i have this number you know forget about it if we are truly to make a socio economic impact on the world then we should not forget that are 20 plus million developers and that we need to go to them not make them come to us. What does it mean? It means that we don't go about inventing and creating languages and new frameworks and tools. No, that we use the existing languages and tools that developers love and are familiar with. They enjoy using, which means a polyglot stack, much like what uh, you know we've built at Neo. Right? C sharp, JavaScript, Go, Rust, you know Python. You name it. Right? It's a fundamental flaw that much of the early, uh, and I blame much of the Ethereum folks for this.
0: Yeah, creating their own, they created their own uh, uh, language called Solidity, and I never understood why it was why a blockchain couldn't launch and and you know be any language support any language.
1: Absolutely, no, you're right, that was a, that was a blunder, right? A blunder of the highest uh, sort, mostly because the people who built it uh, were not platform people. They were essentially building, if you will, a stack. So you had to have lived and walked in the shoes of developers for multiple years, maybe more. To understand what developers want and need, and that's kind of the the view I come from, which is having spent close to 25 years building developer tools and platforms. Right. You mentioned Bitcoin yeah. in terms of the project, uh, you know, vis-a-vis uh, developer ecosystems and projects. here yeah. there's a couple of things I want to introduce. You know, firstly, I think of this notion of the half life of a project. Right. Many projects come and go, and and even in terms of commercial tools, software applications, you might remember. And I don't know, I might, you know, date myself here, but, you know, we remember the Berlin tools, you know, the Power, PowerSoft, PowerBuilder tools, you know, they've come and gone, you know, back in the late, mid-90s. But there's a half-life, right? And so that's a critical way to measure, to evaluate. The yeah. second thing is, in terms of projects, right? Developers, and this is, a, I suppose, a professional flaw, if you will, like to tinker and keep sort of fixing and adding and modifying. I say that, you know, when I look at Bitcoin, it's less a platform. It's more an institution. And because it is more an institution, we don't need to be tinkering with it on an ongoing basis. If it's not broken, don't fix it. Unlike an Ethereum, a NEO, you know, you pick your platform, right? Platforms, platforms are growing, evolving. We are adding new features, new capabilities. We are making life easier and better for developers. That's kind of how I see it. It's not black and white, however.
0: No, it's not black and white. and I'm. And I think we're getting into the post-Satoshi world now where it's, you can almost, as, if we move towards what I think we're going to move towards, where, where, where the, there's going to be a much bigger separation, especially how people view Bitcoin and then crypto, I don't even say uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, I don't like crypto assets, so you call them crypto, there's going to be a difference. And that relationship could be like these tools and new platforms need a sound money or whatever that is. Who knows where that relationship is going to be? but I really like what you said. Maybe we'll title the show that like Bitcoin is an institution because it is the institution. it's a set of beliefs, political, ideological um uh technology beliefs like you can almost say that you you you're a so- are you a software purist?
1: Am I a software purist? Not at all.
0: <laughs> so it's like. Was it, You think Satoshi was almost like a software purist? I don't, I don't know, but it's nice to see that we're moving towards uh, uh, that future. Why do you think, um, What do you, so now as a developer yourself and leading teams, uh, what did you think of the original Bitcoin code base when you first came across it? Oh, brilliant, genius. Just one word, genius. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of people um, wonder why there were some things in there, like there was some code in there. To, uh, for, for potentially like shuffling cards, I think it was, for like some poker work. You know? I, think, I think there was an, uh, like a vision that that would be the potential future or like applications built on top of this Bitcoin thing or applications built on top of like a, a crypto world. Good point. It's
1: a good point. I want to just go back to the point you made earlier with respect to Bitcoin, Bitcoin being an institution. I'm glad you like it because I believe this is something that's being lost in sort of the the maze you know the the cloudy aspects of, as we look across the various uh, you know projects uh, this is a fundamental uh, thing uh, charlie we have to emphasize that you know what we are building with blockchain technologies are not applications you know excel is an application powerpoint is an application you know salesforce is an application but bitcoin is an institution and to further add to this the economic basis You know, whether you go back to IE or NIE, the new institutional economics, there is an economic basis to these institutions. And very simply put, right, for me, the aha was these are self-governing institutions. Apps do not self-govern themselves. They are passive, inert, but Bitcoin does, right? And that's why we need to understand that there is a different perspective. To my platform friends, you know, I say it a little differently. What I say is that in the history of computing, Charlie, We've seen multiple waves of platforms. You know, actually I, built, I worked on mainframes and I'm going to date myself here with punch cards when I was oh my in college.
0: God. Wow, right? like the big rooms with the punch cards in them and everything. Absolutely.
1: And you we had to, to block time and say, look, I get this 20 minute slot when I was in college in Madras in India, right? To go, you know, basically use my tech. right? i am seen PCs, client server, web, SOA, the cloud. But there's one thing, Charlie, which we need to emphasize. In the history of computing, There has never been an economic platform. Never. Blockchains are the first economic platforms in the history of computing, meaning we have economic, crypto-economic protocols baked intrinsically, innately into the stack. Fundamental difference. And this is why so many of my old friends in the enterprise classical IT, traditional IT world, are unable to understand, to grok, what is it that makes this tick? Because if you come in with a, 20, 30 year perspective on traditional platforms as plumbing, pipes, pipes and wires, it's very hard to see what an economic platform looks like.
0: Why, I mean, so how would you describe it to them then? What would you, what would you say? I mean, is that, is that a good way of describing like web two versus web three, rebuilding the pipes?
1: Yes, that's, the, that's another very good distinction. So, so two things, firstly, how do I describe it? I describe it to people as platforms, even economic platforms, you know, in the enterprise world, there are billions, tens of billions, hundreds spent on things like governance and compliance. And in the Bitcoin world, we don't do that. You know why? Because it's baked in. Governance is baked in, right? And so this is a fundamental shift in terms of how to think about, there is no overlay we have to build. You know, use Amazon Web Services. There's only one customer, one client, right? So how do you, how do you ensure governance? you got to bring in busloads of enterprise consultants, big consulting companies, big money lot of waste, right? And, and fundamentally, in this world, we design the incentive model, right? We design incentives and disincentives. And that's not how things have worked in computing for 50, 60 years, not even close. So when I look up to my old enterprise, you know, friends and buddies, they look at blockchain and say, okay, it's a database. It's a decentralized database, right? And therein lies the flaw, because at best, you're seeing half the side of the coin. The other side is the economic stack. How do you exploit the economic protocols? And that's a challenge we face with respect to, I think, the traditional mainstream industry players, which is why we see mostly non-traditional you know, developers and, and builders uh, in our space, Charlie.
0: You know, it's, that's a very good, interesting point that you'd make to your friends because a lot of people do just see it as a decentralized database and they're missing the economic unit of value there. And most exactly. people especially like the pundits that you see on Bloomberg and, and wherever today, they, they can't rationalize. So, so they understand how Bitcoin and crypto is self-evident. Neo it's self-evident. It's existence uh, validates its its own existence or whatever you you say. There's a a, a reason for it to, to be grown. There's a reason there's a value to it. There's price discovery, supply and demand over many, many years. So, I think people rationalize that no problem, but no one really understands how it originally got its value in those first few years. I mean, even all the books and the films and the documentaries, and I know cause I've read, I'm in all of them and I've read them all. They still don't grasp. And I, I, I personally still don't. I remember like when the first Bitcoin economy was created, it was, The only way to earn Bitcoin was to get it for free from a faucet or to earn it by doing some service to the community itself. You're contributing to community, you're contributing your own time and energy into this thing that you love that you didn't expect to get a return. And then you get this like Bitcoin unit of value thing. And then you got this Shrem kid myself selling pocket knives for Bitcoin on the Bitcoin forums. So you can redeem your Bitcoin for things. I was selling like jet blue vouchers in 2011 so it's like it created this very small economy of like misfits but then all the apps and the development kind of came came later and um and so now i kind of want to know like for those listening um ethereum gets all the the credit nowadays and everyone is looking for the ethereum killers or you know the solanas the terras the the I, I blank out. There's so many of them now. I'm talking about them all the time. Um, polygons yes. and Cardano's and, and all of them World most started by a lot of the early people. Tell us, tell us the difference between Neo, what's going on under the hood? Uh, what, you're, you're, you're very, very developer, community friendly. But that term developer, it's not, we're not just talking about the people who are sitting writing 24 hours of code, right? In fact, they don't want
1: to, right? Uh, so, uh, a couple of things. Let me start with saying how I think about developers and the developer experience. So, back when I was at Microsoft, we had this sort of visual uh, model I used to use. You know, you probably hike. Most people hike. When you're hiking, you know, especially your multi-day hike, you have maps, you have compasses, you probably have food stores, you have boots. You know, it's a bit of, it's, it's work. It's climbing uphill. It's a bit of a grind. But eventually, you know, you get there to the to the summit. But it's hard work. Now, on the other hand, I don't know if you ski, but, you know, many people ski. uh, Skiing downhill is fun, is pleasure. You enjoy it. There is no map. There is no compass. There is no grind, right? You just enjoy the experience. And that's the difference between how, you know, a successful developer platform comes through to developers versus a developer platform that's not designed with devs in mind. So number two, what we have done here, in the last two, two plus, two and a half years or so, uh, is uh, we've built the, the best developer toolkit in the industry, Charlie, bar none, the best dev toolkit. And this goes all the way from the, the fundamentals, the inners. You know, when we came on, uh, there was no really meaningful de- debugger in the blockchain space. We have built the best debugger. You know, for example, time travel debugging. One of the things that I worked on uh, with my buddies back in Microsoft, being able to go back and forth Right, you know, we've uh, made this very simple, very easy to use for developers uh, of all shapes and sizes. Whether you're a professional, whether you're a, you know, uh, an amateur, right? Being able to have symmetry across private, test, and and mainnet, yeah. and so I could I could I could I could talk for 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 hours in terms of the of the Dev Toolkit, but I would say, folks, if you haven't uh, given it a spin, you know, try it out. We, we have built the best Dev Toolkit bar none. It's comparable to, if not better than. Azure and Amazon Web Services. And I can tell you this because uh, I worked on, I built the DevTools for Azure.
0: Most people are like me though. We can, we can go into a GitHub. We know our way around uh, some libraries. We know we can maybe, uh, you know, read. You know, someone asked me actually the other day, they said, Charlie, can you help me identify where the code is in a specific blockchain for the, for the burning of tokens? And so I had to like go in there, it took like two hours to find it. Um, and, that's, and I'm like an entry level. I'm like a one out of 10. If you're a 10, you're like you. If you're a one, zero, you know nothing about developing. Uh, I'm at like a one or a two. And I think most people are like that. It's such a stupid question, but where, not a there's no such thing as a stupid question, but how can I get to like, I don't want to be a seven or eight. I'm not trying to develop full time, but I want to be more confident around code base, especially when talking to CTOs and hiring developers. That's such like, I need to know enough.
1: No, it's a really good question, Charlie, and I'm glad you asked it. Uh, what what I suggest is just, you know, all of us don't need to, don't have to be developers, and certainly we don't, you know, there is a, I would say the key is being able to, to read code and then to write code. Uh, I certainly believe uh, the skills to read code uh, significantly and sometimes maybe equally yes. if not more, right? And that's what I would suggest to people is, you know, you don't have to, Hold yourself back. Anybody listening to the show, right? Don't hold yourself back. Don't feel like you have to use Visual Studio or code or any of the tools. Just being able to go to GitHub, like you said, Charlie. Being able to browse around, look at it, get a sense of the flow. Forget about the the the. the oh next man!
0: Steps. You know what we should right. do? We should put on, like literally, do a podcast where we just go through blockchains, various blockchains, code base, and just just go through what it all, yes. what it does and means. No one has done that. I can't find that anywhere. head to developer toolkits, how are we supposed to do that?
1: I love that you said it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you. And in fact, maybe sometime we will do, you know, uh, another show together. Plus, I love it. I think that's yeah. the key, is to be able to understand, right? Then when you're able to read, you know, so much of this, the, the walls fall away, right? Then you say, okay, ah, this, is the, this is the logic. This is the flow. This is the... St- Forget about the nuts and bolts. You know, the, the core devs can take care of the nuts and bolts. Forget about it. But just being able to get a sense of, you know, because architecture, and having been an architect for 20, 25 years, Charlie, architecture, uh, how do you evaluate architecture? Two things. One is elegance. You know, it feels good to you. You like a certain building. You go to a church, a cathedral. You go to a museum, a library. You know, you, you enjoy the experience. The second is the longevity. How long has it lasted? Right? The same thing for software. You know, when you look at software code, you read it, you say, is this elegant? Because Beautiful things are elegant, and beautiful things are good. that's what. that's kind of how you know, basically in nature, you know as human beings, uh, and, and i'm now I'm going into other branches aspect of here, but but I believe you know divinity you know is very closely linked to to elegance to beauty, right? The second thing, of course, we discussed earlier, the half- life of the software and and the longevity, you know how long is the code base without getting into this big mess, right? That's kind of how I evaluate architecture. I want to go back to something you said earlier about Web two oh Charlie, if you if you're okay with it.
0: No, yeah, and I and, and anything I ask you that because I ask like three or four questions at a time, I end up writing down what we need to come back to too. Like I want Very to great. talk about Neo in a little bit. I want to talk about, uh, but yeah, go anywhere you want. I'm saving all the information.
1: Well, thank you. I, I do want to go back to Web 2.0. Oh, you mentioned a little bit earlier, and 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 I, in fact, I'm writing an article on on Web three. I call this. Uh, Web3 sense and nonsense.
0: Uh, and, oh, and
1: I like be very that. candid, That's a good idea. Because it, to me, Web2 is a bit of a cesspool, Charlie. You know, what began as user-created content, if you remember back 10, 12 years ago, was the idea that users create content. And now we have ended up with surveillance capitalism. Um, I don't think yeah. any of us want to build on that particular base of surveillance capitalism. So I'm I'm not a dollar fan of this Web3 Uh, terminology, right? When Web2 itself is such a shaky foundation to me. And again, to my earlier point, if you see it from an economic platform perspective, we don't need to build on another base, Charlie. We have the base ourselves. We are the first, we are building the first economic platforms in history. Forget about Web2. Web2 is just, you know, was just a bad detour in my humble opinion.
0: I mean, we're using those protocols. We're using like TCIP. Can that could you replace that? I mean, is that something that we could almost like not replace, but create a, a complementary, better version of that? And that's where I would see we're beyond like some new web three. I can't really fathom that and how that would all work though.
1: That's a good point. The infrastructure. And that is to me, the internet, you know, back in the late sixties, early seventies, when the universities, academia in the U S in particular invested in protocols. Absolutely. The underlying, uh, the core protocols. Yes. Uh, but to me, uh, the what I call the Web2 detour, uh, I think uh, probably created more, <laughs> uh, yeah. how do I say it, politely and, and, and politically correctly, uh, created more destruction than anything constructive uh, with respect to the socioeconomic impacts uh, of uh, how we use the so-called Web2 technologies, I think.
0: Honestly, I agree with that so much. It's 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 almost scary that for the sake of the we're We're doing like we're you talk about divinity and perfection, like people make fun of me, and I talk about how the Satoshi group could be some some being or like time travelers or something that our brains can't fathom yet, just because we're not at that level, you know you talk to physicists and we just don't have the brain capacity at this point in time to really understand everything yet, and we have to recognize that that was one of the best things I ever learned was that sometimes we're uh uh we don't have the, the neurological capacity yet. And, um, but I wanted to, before we get into that, because that's like a very deep, we're talking about uh, the relationship between mathematics and, and flowers and nature. And, and we're talking about things that Leonardo da Vinci predicted. He predicted a, I, a lot of this stuff, but I want to ask, okay, so, so here it's like it's 1998. You're, you're starting at Microsoft. It's, uh, it's 9%. Of U.S. households have access to the internet, it's probably a lot lower than that. I don't know where someone got that statistic. Now it's like 100% plus. We got billions of users. What did the internet world look like back then? Like looking forward, what did it look like? And if I would have asked you then, how do you how do we onboard the first billion users? And what was missing back then? And then how would you like kind of compare it and contrast it to where we are right now in crypto land?
1: Awesome. That's a beautiful question. Uh, lots of perspectives. I would say first and foremost, uh, back in 98, 99, there was a lot of discussion debate about mobile devices and how they would bring in millions and tens of millions of people on board. But the fundamental flaw in much of the thinking was that so much of, of work, you know, R&D and investment was spent on efforts that ultimately were proved uh, to be, you know, irrelevant by Mr. Jobs, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and that, that to me is kind of, when I look back in that particular era, that was the big, big shift that so much of what you might call conventional mainstream wisdom was just upside down, right? In, in one stroke when, uh, of course, Apple and Mr. Jobs did what he did. The second aspect in terms of uh, connectivity, uh, yes. You're right, probably about 8 maybe maybe even 10% uh, in terms of uh, connectivity at that point in time. Uh, But we hadn't seen uh, the advent of cloud platforms. That was an alien concept at that time for much, most of the industry. The notion that we could actually outsource, if you will, compute storage, networking, bandwidth to the cloud uh, was really something that we were working on, but uh, was completely alien. You know, the the notion that you would give it away. Why would you want to have a server running at home? You know, at that time, people were talking about home servers. right? I don't know if you remember, but there was I a, remember, yeah. a big detour.
0: It was called like a NAS or like a home storage device, like yes. a server at your house. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's right. Was that the name <laughs> of it? NAS, I think? Exactly. Yeah, NAS, yeah. Bringing back memories. Plus, the second
1: thing. You look back and say, you know, we've gotten so comfortable giving it away. We don't need to have these things in our basements and, you know, running. And, and the third thing uh, I would emphasize, Charlie, is with respect to uh, energy. There was not as much. Uh, thought in terms of energy consumption usage and of course transmission and efficiency and all of these things that today we, we're able to understand much better right and and that's uh, and by the way on this one <laughs> just as a detail right people talk about how proof of work uh, and, and energy consumption and so I want to just you know in a slightly maybe partly tongue-in-cheek comment I would say if you wanted to reduce energy consumption Charlie you know what you would do you would ban HTTPS SSL. Think about it. Think about the think about the implications and how how ridiculous it would sound.
0: Yeah, like you couldn't do any security over the internet anymore.
1: Yes, because SSL coprocessors, SSL processing. Think about all the the impact. Right, I'm just saying. You know how ridiculous some of these discussions and debates actually, if you bring it down to the basics, are.
0: If the whole if the whole world was using like multiple blockchains and everything across and if it was a mixture of proof of work and proof of stake, we'd use less energy than like home dryers, you know, washer and dryers in the United States. I mean, it's a a (laughs) stupid point. In fact, like if we we, anyone just go do a study of who has built the dams or the hydropower plants in the past 10 years and it's his Bitcoin miners. I hate to say we're build. We are. The green revolution without without Bitcoiners, there is no green revolution. There is no alternative energy. It doesn't, yeah, we're there's no economic incentive to do so, like you talked about. You create an economic incentivization layer to all industries to be transparent. That's the crazy thing. It's so cool.
1: Precisely, precisely. And that's the key, isn't it? I mean, economic incentives and disincentives. And this is what makes Bitcoin, right, unique in the history. And this is why the platforms we are building—you know what what I'm building at Neo, what people are building at Ethereum, elsewhere—these are economic platforms, Charlie. How do we get this through to people? This is kind of, you know, for me, and why I write a lot of what I write is because I want to get these ideas through. that this is not your father's platform, right? Let alone your grandfather's platform.
0: Sorry to interrupt your regular scheduled programming, but I wanted to tell you guys that if you're using Pancake Swap, Uniswap, DYDX, Sushi Swap, you're doing it wrong you need to be using Paraswap because PowerSwap is a user interface, a decentralized smart contract platform that sits on top of all of these. And when you go to Paraswap or untoldstories.link forward slash PowerSwap because they're refunding your gas, if you go there, then you'll be able to, on top of Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain and Polygon, look for the best prices for your tokens and swap and do everything in one predefined transaction on chain, instead of having to do the approval to this token, to that token, to do all these different things, Paraswap does it all for you. It's decentralized. They just released their API version five that you can see everything. It's all open source. Very cool stuff. Untoldstories.link forward slash Paraswap. If you're using any of the other decentralized protocols, you're doing it wrong because you need to be using the routing, beautiful Paraswap routing system, and it's fully decentralized too. It's gorgeous. Talk to you guys soon. What, and this is like a, a cool question that I, that I thought about today. Um, how can cities incorporate uh, this infrastructure? I mean, what type of things can you bring Neo? Can you bring Neo to like municipalities and cities and, and let's build out, can we build out voting infrastructure? Can we build out like, there's so much that goes on in, in, in city infrastructure that costs a lot of money, uh, taxpayers, a lot of money, unless you have a very well-run city government, but there's so much underneath just how city contracts work. I was talking to the mayor of my city and I was explaining to him how we can take just that whole contract process and put it on, on the blockchain. And he was blown away by that because that's, there's so much supervision that you have to maintain to prevent corruption and graft in that.
1: A really good, good question. I would say for us, for me, the tools I build, that we build, that develop a platform we have built on N3 fundamentally has a vision of digitizing assets, digitizing assets, all shapes and sizes and formats. Uh, and so this goes all the way. You know, you can use N3 to have uh, to digitize credentials, right? Educational credentials, college, high school, diplomas. You can digitize uh, property, Taxes, property tax management, being able to have a way to, right? All the way in between. Uh, that's kind of how does me, that
0: work? You
1: know, uh, that could... How to digitize assets?
0: No, well, let's talk about like using N3 to, to digitize like property tax. So everyone, anyone who owns a property has to interface with the property tax department. There's all ad valorem, all like stuff that goes in there of what we're funding and then at the same time that whole process like that's actually a great idea
1: absolutely because look in the decentralized world charlie everything is a claim think about it
0: yeah it's true
1: right in the centralized world that was not maybe not the case but in in the world of decentralization everything is a claim even consensus is a claim that is Eventually validated or not validated, depending on you know POW, pos and so on. And so, when I look at cities, you know, uh, councils, commissions, state government, local government, maybe even the central government, uh, we are dealing with mostly claims, right? What what is the ownership of an asset or a property? It's a claim. What is a diploma? It's a claim. Yeah, it's
0: right?
1: a good point. What, what is a what is a resume it's a claim
0: of but now some it's like you don't have to trust you verify
1: yes right and that's why for me when we talk about assets you know the the some a lot of people think about assets in the very traditional sense yes you know you talked about earlier in the beginning about stable coins you know you can have asset backed coins you know you can build a you know a, a oil and gas backed stable coin you know, on neo on n3 you can build a you know, property. Uh, you know, NFTs in terms of uh, oh, real estate so cool. assets on N3, right? But all the way in between, for me, you know, it's not just the 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 classical physical analog. Uh, everything is a claim, and if it's a claim, it's an asset that can be verified, like you said, validated, and uh, and eventually, you know, assigned, transferred. But one of the things you talked about early is also you know multiple chains and interoperability. So, just to give you a little bit of a digression here. I am one of the co-founders of the Interwork Alliance. So About two years ago, we launched the Interwork Alliance uh, with uh, the likes of Microsoft, uh, Accenture, uh, NASDAQ, SDX and uh, and others I'm probably forgetting. Uh, The thesis was very simple, which is that no change shall be an island. We know this for a fact, but in practical terms, this means that we need standards, specifications for schemas, protocols, and so we have built out these schemas. For example, the token taxonomy framework, TTF is something I'm very proud of. And in fact, we have built uh, designers, token designers for TTF, wherein you know business people, non-technical people, non devs can come in uh, and, and and design and sort of create and visualize uh, assets, tokens. Right? So interoperability, having worked on this in the early days of the cloud at Microsoft and at Web Services, this is for me very, very critically important right? In, interrupt will happen, whether we like it or not, whether you want it or not. And let's do it right. Let's do it right with the standards-based. Uh, and so I work with the IEEE as a co-chair of the IEEE efforts. And in and three, we are implementing many of these standards and specifications because I believe, you know, this is the right way to give back to the community, to share, it, right? Ooh, Otherwise, yeah, this notion that we're all building our islands, uh, it's a lot of nonsense, I think.
0: Vitalik wrote about, uh, Vitalik wrote about how these bridges and wormholes are going to get hacked and they're insecure because there's no standards across all chains. And I agree with you. So, so, so am I wrong to say that in the future, moving assets from chain to chain won't require even a middleman service? We could potentially, the standards could be built into the chains themselves to have mechanisms to do that. Is that possible?
1: It's totally possible. I don't want to go back to the comment you, you mentioned about Vitalik. So I think what Vitalik was saying was he was differentiating between multi-chain and cross-chain. Yeah, so yeah. If you look at his blog post, right? So what he was saying, and I'm again paraphrasing him, he was saying multi-chain will happen, and he was saying cross-chain may not happen. And again, I'm paraphrasing his words, right? In some sense, uh, I, I think he's right in that multi-chain, of course, right? who's going to argue against multi-chain? It's going to happen. as a fact of life. Whether we like it or not, private, public—you know—it's going to be by, you know, by geographies. The yeah, EU, yeah. Because we
0: but... didn't even talk about the the regulatory. We're assuming every chain can be permissionless and open all the time, but exactly. that's not going to be the case. And there are some chains that we don't want to. For example, if my city gave me one vote and a token to represent that, that should be a permission chain. You need to be a resident okay. of the city to get that token.
1: Precisely, sure. precisely right? And so multi-chain. Then you go to cross-chain, and I think what he's referring to is the the challenges, and, and in particular, the security and the developer aspects tooling, right? The tools haven't matured. A lot of the people were talking about how, you know, they are the cross-chain tools or cross-chain, you know, asset transfer mechanisms, you know, haven't really thought through. And this is why, for me, the developer toolkit, the dev experience comes in. Debugging. Debugging on one chain is hard. Debugging across multiple chains is is 10 Could
0: times, you imagine? times, right? How do you, how do you actually do that when they're all using different, they're all built using different programming languages? I mean, why does, does the fact that we have multiple programming languages, a foreshadow into like a multi-chain world?
1: It's, it's a similar theme, right? Polyglot, polyglot as not multi-language, the same theme, poly, poly chain, multi-chain, right? It's a kind of a fractal model, if you will, if you want to kind of abstract it to a higher level, it's a, very much a, you know, sort of recursive fractal approach. So how do you debug? Uh, quite simply, you think of it as a distributed system with multiple services and components. The happy path is always easy when you have a distributed system. It's only when the when the errors and the bugs happen. So how do you do it? Well, a variety of mechanisms. Obviously, in terms of debugging, being able to have the underlying mechanisms. I mentioned time travel debugging, right? This idea, you know, that basically you can move back and forth in the timeline. Of the chain or chains, critical aspect, absolutely critical aspect. Without that, you know, you, you're really at best getting maybe 10, 25% of the debugging capabilities. We've built that in the in the dev toolkit, right? In the entry dev toolkit. This is kind of the things that you know, when I when I core developer experience and making it fun, enjoyable. This is where it comes in. Otherwise, think about it. It's a nightmare, right? And this is why when, when Vital is talking about cross-chain. He's right in that much of the industry has not caught up with the need for professional developer tooling, especially with respect to cross-chain. Eventually, we'll get there, but the question is, you know, who gets there first, and so on.
0: We don't even know what we're what we're what we're here to build yet. So it's like it's hard to rationalize the need for like Epic developer tools because we don't even know or we didn't really know what we're doing. You said this like a uh, polyglot, uh, term that I had not heard of until today, um. But NEO is a polyglot blockchain, multiple programming languages. It's, is it the only I, I don't know how the how does that even work?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. It's the architecture that we've designed. <laughs> right. So in, in in very simple terms, you can bake in a language into the platform. That's the worst thing you can do as a platform designer, because you're tightly coupling a certain language and the underlying platform fabric, if you will, right? To design a platform right to do it well. You have to appreciate developers come in again, like we said, all shapes and sizes and forms, and they have different languages of choice. So you decouple the language, the tooling to build the smart contracts from the underlying platform. And then you have a layer of abstraction. In computer science, there is a very old joke, uh, and, I'm, and pardon me for saying this, but it's a very old joke which says you can solve any computer science problem with a layer of abstraction. And there is truth. It's, it's a joke. It's, it's, it's like PHP. It's a, it's, a, it's a truth. Yeah. And that's what we do, basically, is you design these layers of abstraction to be able to decouple specific languages from the platform. Now, it takes more work, Charlie. It takes more effort. It takes more design skills and expertise, right? Which is why many of the platforms out there have, and are they even platforms? I don't know. It's hard to say, but you know, they've so tightly coupled these together where this notion of a polyglot uh, approach uh, is practically impossible, unlike N3.
0: My first, my first business before Bitcoin, I had a company, Daily Checkout, an e-commerce company. Uh, we had a whole backend platform that worked, and at the time, this was like 2007, maybe 2008, 2009. This was like when you know building comprehensive uh, backends to opt to to interface with multiple. So you had and the reason I'm telling you this is because it was built on ASP.NET, and I'm remembering ah. it all now. And what I happened see. was, well, there, this is what happened, I, and the show this way, there was a, a piece of software called Arcus and it, it managed the, the, the company that owned my company had like 15 different uh, uh, electronics brands, uh, department stores, like from b and h to Sixth Avenue Electronics, huge, huge camera stores and electronics stores, inventories across multiple different categories and stuff like that. But their software. Was this DOS like it was a you'd have to launch like an emulator on your Windows computer to operate this thing. It was the worst. But the problem was everything was built on that. And there was this one guy, this old man who built it, and they'd have to hire him, and he was getting sick all the time. And I was the young kid. So they trained me on this. And and so I learned Arcus. And this is probably why I never decided to do, to to continue my my development like education. Was I like, I hate there was no debugger. So I never knew if something would break, I didn't, I hated the job of like having to go and like play whack-a-mole and fix and try to like figure out what the problem was, but the cream to crop one of the best, and you're going to laugh. I shouldn't even admit this, but one of the, my like high point of my career was getting a relationship between our dot. And then our.net backend, which was, you know, so you could do it, dude. If I tell you how I did it at some point at part of the process, was one of these pieces of software that just emulated a mouse and keyboard. Cause there were some things with keep with the Arcus, you just needed a mouse. You couldn't even there was no API to like tell it to do something. So you'd have to actually emulate like a keyboard. Oh my God, man. Early oh, internet oh, was crazy. That's fascinating. <laughs> I'm like an old nineteen. Years, I'm like, I'm never doing development ever again after this. I'm just gonna be on the business side of things. But it, it was really a lot of fun though. I was like breaking back cool memories now
1: <laughs> well we got to give you a, a spin on the toolkit uh, charlie you can build test debug deploy a smart car in about 2 3 minutes we'll give you a demo sometime
0: that's really an amazing thing you, so anyone can come on and 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 spin up things
1: that's the way it should be that's the way it should be right there should be there should be as little you know friction as, as possible at all that any friction is just a a block an obstacle that needs to be removed, uh, you know again, going back to the developer experience, like you said, right you did not enjoy it uh, developer experience have to be enjoyable
0: you kept it fun, the experience enjoyable, but there was a time when the governments around the world really wanted to regulate the internet or the protocols around it. do you like what happened when when was that
1: oh, I don't know it's uh, it seems like they still want to do it they don't yeah
0: <laughs> and it just right. It scares me because we had the internet as we know it today because uh, you guys were largely left alone to like kind of do what you need to do for, for a decade or two. And so I'm, I'm nervous that with Bitcoin and crypto land, it's still too early to create these walled gardens because we don't know what we're even here to build yet.
1: Oh, absolutely. Very well said. In fact, this goes by something you said earlier, Charlie, which is, how do we know what to build or what they will build? Uh, the fundamental thesis in building dev platforms is build it and they will come, right? You build the best possible dev tools and stack, and you'll be amazed and astounded at what people do with it You know, when you give them those tools uh, and the underlying uh, dev experience. That's my experience.
0: You think that the one of the reasons that developers want to work on blockchain and crypto digital assets is just because... The, the, the tools are just a lot more newer and fresher and the blockchains are newer and fresher and everything is just like it's it's you can enter now and learn it now. And it's built for 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 learners. It's built for people to come on as opposed for other things are are built kind of in defense as you know, they're built to solve problems that are coming at them.
1: That's a very good point, actually. It's a really, it's a, it's a very insightful point. Yes. And I, I like what you said about in defense. And that's what, you know, developers and builders don't really appreciate or want to do. I think it's a very good summary. I like it.
0: Yeah. the um, I remember at that instant, like the, our problem was our demand was so great that we built our whole code base in defense. So it just was was put together by like scotch tape and scissors and... Yeah. And I remember like a year and a half later, I'm like, we're never gonna be able to, to rebuild this from scratch because the users will just go somewhere else. And at that, like a month later, Coinbase launched. And I was like, Well, you know, if we shut down even for two months, we lose all of our business because there was nowhere else to go to buy and sell Bitcoin at the time.
1: No, absolutely I like what you said in defense. I think it's a very good way of describing. I'm gonna steal it from you.
0: John, I really appreciate you taking the time and coming on Untold Stories today. If 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 um if you're cool. I'd love to schedule. I think we're going to need like, we could do it over multiple days, but we're going to need a couple of hours. Maybe we'll release like a multiple part series where we can at least start with the Bitcoin blockchain and the Bitcoin's white paper and code base. And just kind of go through it and like, what does everything do? And we could talk about the economic incentives and how it all, the relationship together, then we can do some other blockchains. We could do the Neo next and then, and then do some other ones too, because I think that's really missing.
1: Well, absolutely, Charlie, I I, I would love to do that. And I think you're right. Bitcoin with Satoshi's work is obviously seminal to everything we are doing these days. So going back and looking at the architecture, the elegance, and, and to understand the design patterns, I mean, that would be a lot of fun. Absolutely. I do want to thank you. I know you're a very busy man. I It's been a privilege uh, to connect on your show. And uh, I want to very much thank you for giving me your time and just for the fun discussion. I appreciate
0: it, Charlie. You're welcome. Thank you. This is These podcasts are the best discussions I have all week, and I don't get to talk to Very many brilliant people. So thank you so much again for taking the time.
1: Thank you, sir. Much appreciated.